Good evening and welcome everybody. It's very nice to see um, a good number of faces here. Um, I'm going to introduce our speaker in just a moment. In case you're wondering why it's me here, let me just tell you very quickly why it's me here. Um, we're going to hear tonight about issues surrounding the connection between uh, leadership and the reality of challenges that our speaker, Herta von Stiegel, has herself had to face and deal with, and not overcome, but succeed through, I think is fair to say. And my role here at the LSE is to set up and run a new program for African leadership. So it ties together uh, in a nice way, I think, the different areas of interest that Herta brings together in her talk tonight and in her book, which I believe is for sale outside there. I've done your pitch for you. Um, Fleeing Romania as a child, if I may just say a couple of things. Um, Herta moved to the US and made a very successful life for herself in business and in traveling to the UK and in Europe. But you'll see when you read, from the, book, when you read the book that that, that life in business and uh, in the financial sector, I think you'll correct me if I'm misinterpreting, um, did not provide her deep enough and lasting enough satisfaction, is my interpretation of the book. Um, and so she turned to other ways in which to find her own personal, more meaningful satisfaction in life. And that took on uh, the shape of taking on a physical challenge of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, which didn't prove as successful as she might have liked the first time round. So with this in her head, 10 years later, uh, she went back and tried again. And there is the interesting story that I'm going to leave to you uh, and, not, and not spoil that now. But let me just say we will have about 35 to 40 minutes to hear from Herta von Stiegel about uh, what she talks about in the book. And um, there, the book is for sale outside. And afterwards, if you would let us leave the room first so that Herta can sit at the table for anybody who'd like a copy signed. And then you can come out and <laughs> rush her as you please. Um, uh, so that's how we'll do that. And in between um, the presentation and going out to the books, we will have time for discussion and question and answer. So uh, I think that's enough from me. And we'd like to hear very much from you, Herta. Welcome tonight. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sen, for, for that introduction. The Mountain Within. This title was very carefully chosen because when we are thinking of climbing mountains, of succeeding, of climbing the corporate ladder, what is the first thing we are thinking of? It's the mountain out there, isn't it? We are thinking about the physical elements. We're thinking about the the height of the mountain. We are thinking about the people we need to influence. We're thinking about the bosses who may not like us. We are, we are thinking about the colleagues who may be standing in our way. But at the end of the day, the people who are succeeding are those who recognize that the mountain we need to conquer is actually the mountain within. And that is by far the more difficult thing. So this title was really very, very carefully chosen to juxtapose those two. And in its very essence, to be provocative, to, cha to challenge us. Mount Kilimanjaro, why in the world would a banker uh, who has, had, has done nothing athletically decide to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? 
In my investment banking days, I had a very difficult time relaxing. So when we would go on holiday, it always took me a whole week to unwind. How many here feel like that, that it's difficult, it's difficult to unwind? Yes, indeed. Uh, my husband figured out that there was a recipe to this, and that was to go to Africa because within hours, being in the Serengeti, being on safari, within hours, I was relaxed because, quite frankly, the wildebeest couldn't care less what's on your business card. The zebras care even less. And so it was this great, great equalizer. So initially, I looked at, at, at Africa as simply a place to relax. And as part of this, a glimpse of Mount Kilimanjaro out there. And I said to my husband, I'm going to climb that for my 40th birthday. And uh, at first, uh, it was this look like I had two heads. And uh, because I had, while I loved the mountains, I had never attempted a physical climb of that magnitude. How many here have climbed Kilimanjaro? Fantastic. So you know how tall it is. 5,895 excruciating meters. And that's 19,340 feet, for those of you who think in feet. So it's a tall mountain. It's the world's tallest freestanding mountain. And I just wanted to summit that, that, that mountain. I fell in love with it. I looked at it. And for my 40th birthday, we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And it was an absolute failure, an abysmal, abysmal failure. And I'm very happy to tell you why that was the case. But in the first instance, we got to the Barranco Wall, which is at 4,200 meters, because we took the Machame route, um, and for a number of reasons needed to turn back. Now, the Machame route, the locals call it the whiskey route. Uh, there is also the easy one, which is the Coca-Cola route, but it is the whiskey route that is the more challenging and the more, more beautiful one. So we took the whiskey route, um, and the first time was an abysmal failure. The second time, so for me, it was unfinished business. And uh, maybe just the personality that I am uh, really left this as something that was gnawing at me. I came back to London, continued my career in the city, and in the back of my mind there was this sense of, you know, I didn't really make it to the top. And that, that kind of bothered me, but uh, not too much. So I'm, I got involved with, with a major charity called Enum, a beautiful disability charity that very few people had heard of. And uh, a friend of mine is the chairman of that charity, and we wanted to raise its profile. So I'm literally running on the treadmill, and, uh, and I, again, my husband was next to me, and I'm running on the treadmill, and I said, you know what I want to do for my 50th birthday? And it was this weary look, and it, <laughs> don't tell me you want to climb Kilimanjaro. And, and I said, yes, but not, not just climbing Kilimanjaro. I want to take a group of disabled climbers with me. And <laughs> within seconds, I had the whole plan outlined. We're going to take disabled climbers and non-disabled climbers up Kilimanjaro. We're going to create a multi-ethnic, multi-ability team. Each disabled climber is going to be teamed up with non-disabled climbers, and we're going to, together to summit Mount Kilimanjaro, or at least attempt to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. And so from the time that the dream was born to the time when we actually climbed was about a two-year project. 
here is the team now at the, at the at the foothills of Kilimanjaro. You can see we are, uh, there are seven disabled climbers uh, with their non-disabled buddies, and this is where we are still clean, and our hair still looks good, and we are still in shape. But this was not going to, to last very long. But this was the team that was ready to go. And just to give you a feel for the composition of the team, one of the climbers uh, had had a nervous breakdown at, at around 2000. She had not been out of her house for about six years. She received a flyer about this expedition and decided for the first time that she would get on a bus and actually come. Another, thank you so much, another climber uh, had had a stroke when he was only four years old. So, uh, or had an accident when he was only four years old and he had all the symptoms of a stroke. So his left side was basically paralyzed for all practical purposes. Um, another, another climber uh, who uh, had had an accident, uh, she was a horse trainer, a horse threw her against a tree. She was on her back for four and a half years. She had almost 30 operations, and by the time she climbed with us, she had one more operation to go because one of her legs was still shorter than the other. Uh, so we had a, a, a mix of physical and mental disabilities, and, uh, and six, six disabled climbers from the UK, one from Saudi Arabia. What did I learn from this? And maybe just very briefly how the book came about and, uh, and the, uh, a book on leadership and Kilimanjaro. Um, we climbed July 2008. The financial crisis, the first real, real leg hit in, in September of 2008. Uh, and up to that point, I was really proud of my CV. I felt I had a perfect CV, Citibank, JP Morgan, AIG Financial Products. And then the crisis hit. And it was, you know, these, these institutions where I had dedicated so much of my energy needed to be bailed out. And it was an ignominious thing to actually see, and I will never forget the feeling I had in my stomach when I watched the news. I was in New York at the time at a board meeting, and I was watching the news that AIG, the mighty AIG, with a AAA rating up to almost the last minute, needed to be bailed out. Citibank needed to be bailed out. It just, it just ate me up. And, and, and I made the comment, I said, you know, this is not a crisis just of a financial nature. This is a crisis of leadership. It's a crisis of governance. It's a crisis of principles. And somehow I want to make my voice heard. And I, just in passing, I said to a friend, um, you know, I learned more from leading a group of volunteers up Kilimanjaro than my whole years in banking. <laughs> and, and, and I rattled off what I had learned, and hence this, this book was born. So the first lesson I would like to share is, is ruthlessly prepare. I'm starting with the things that are not glamorous, things that intuitively we all know, and yet and yet we don't necessarily like to grapple with. But being here in an institution of higher learning, I think this 
lesson of ruthlessly prepare is incredibly important. For this expedition, as I said, we prepared for about two years. The, we had to look at every single detail, including who would pick up the body bags if somebody was to die on Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, every detail was planned. Do you know how many people die on average on Mount Kilimanjaro a year? Those of you who have climbed, um, <laughs> it's good to see you all here, but on average, eight people die on, on uh, uh, attempting to summit Kilimanjaro. So it's not, a, it's not something to joke with. So we had really prepared everything to the most excruciating detail. And it was that preparation that enabled us to work through the very difficult times. Why is that so relevant to what we are doing today? I think anybody who is looking at, at the current state of the economy is bound to be scared stiff. The, in all my years in banking, I haven't seen this roller coaster. It is, it is an, a, an exceptional time. But that doesn't mean we need to be scared. What it does mean is that we actually need to prepare more than ever. And not just prepare for the short term, for what we can see right in front of our faces, but to prepare for the long term. Because those of you who are graduating now, you are not going to have the luxury of five job offers. The people who graduated in, in the 90s, they were getting the five job offers, <laughs> and they could negotiate salaries at, 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 their, at their whim. You're coming out at a different time, and I think the people who are going to succeed during this time of crisis are people who see beyond the short term. And, um, and it's looking, looking, what can we look at in terms of the future that enables us to prepare for the present? The German philosopher Hegel said, the future determines the present, and the present determines the past. Now, what does that mean? None of us has a crystal ball, right? So what does that mean? How can we look at the future and enable the future to determine the present? From an economic point of view, I think we, we need to look at megatrends. We need to start not just looking at the next, what's around the corner, but what are the megatrends? What are the big trends that are out there? And certainly one of the major trends I think we need to look at is demographics. Demographics. The, because demographics informs what, what the decisions are today, where we should be investing today. Do you know what's going to happen in Europe by 2050? What is going to happen to the population in, in Europe? We are going to have fewer people in Europe by 2050 than we have today. And you know what else? The population by 2050 in Europe is going to be a lot older than what we have today. So you're looking at a continent where we have fewer people in 2050 and a very old population. So forget retirement. We may as well get rid of that. <laughs> you know, it's, that, that it, we're, we're moving into a very different dynamic. In the States, the population is, is going to grow by about 100 million or so, but it is modicum, it, it is limited growth, and it comes primarily from migration. China, guess what's going to happen to China with its billion-plus people? How many think China is going to have more people by 2050 than it has today? How many think fewer? 
And how many don't care? <laughs> well, those of you who raised your hand that you don't care, you should. And here is why. China is going to have fewer people by 2050 than it has today. And it's going to have a very old population. Where we see population explosion is in India, another half a billion people. We're going to see 2.1 billion people in Africa. So you're looking at, at dynamics here that are completely going to change where we are today. Africa, India, very young population, and that factors in AIDS, it factors in a number of, the, of, of the, the issues that would militate against those statistics. So demographics we need to look at. Where do you want to invest today? Where, where are the people going to be that are going to provide for the workforce, that are going to support those pensioners? Where are they going to be? So demographics we need to look at. We need to look at climate change. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand the science behind climate change necessarily, but I do know one thing. The, the Chinese government is incredibly worried about climate change. And why are they worried? They believe that, and I was part of a delegation to China, I heard this firsthand. They believe that if the world increases by two degrees, the temperature increases by two degrees centigrade, they're going to go from three rice harvests a year to two. That means they cannot feed their population as it is. So climate change is actually going to affect, it's not going to affect us too badly sitting here in the UK, but it is going to affect Africa very brutally. It's going to, and, and we see it already, uh, and it's going to affect parts of India and China where you have most of the population concentrated. So, so looking, looking at trends, um, I'm on the board, uh, on, a, on the advisory board of Volans, which is a think tank, and last night we launched um, the Future Quotient. And the Future Quotient, uh, if it is successful, people will think of an FQ along the lines that we are thinking right now of an IQ or an EQ. And the idea is that the people who are in leadership will have high FQs because we need people who are thinking beyond their noses, who are, who are thinking long term, but who have the ability to look at trends and then make the decisions and make things happen today that will respond to that, to that knowledge. Does that make sense? So that's, uh, that's, that's the need for, for preparation. It is not enough to prepare for the obvious. It, it is preparing for what you cannot necessarily uh, uh, predict with, with, with certainty. Um, and I think as part of the preparation, one of the key elements which I think leaders pay a lot of lip service to and good leaders actually know is that if you want to get anything done, you work with people. And when you are actually trying to get something from point A to point B, you really do need to put yourself in the other person's shoes. What is it that keeps them from working with me so my project is successful? That's not manipulation. It's trying to understand where the other people are coming from. So ruthlessly prepare was the first thing that I, that I learned. The second thing I learned was fail fast and fail forward. 
As, uh, as Professor Sen said already at the beginning, the first uh, expedition uh, that, uh, that I undertook was, uh, was a brutal failure, but, and it, for multiple reasons. But I really learned that failure is actually the soil where seeds of greatness can germinate. Because I firmly believe if I hadn't failed so miserably the first time, you know, this second expedition probably would not have happened. Because knowing me, if I had made it to the top the first time, I would have ticked that box. <laughs> I've achieved it. It's great. Thank you very much. And I'll go on and do something else. But the fact that I didn't meet my objective the first time, the, the fact that, that it, it, it was so, such an unpleasant experience, really fested at me. And, and the, when I led this expedition, it actually gave me the courage to, because I knew what could go wrong. And so we, we planned, uh, we, we, this, this failure the, the first time was really, really the soil for, for a second successful expedition. Um, I think if anything, this is, this is such a key lesson. The people who are succeeding in life are people who learn to deal with failure. They know how to deal with failure. And that is to make allowance for the fact that my project may fail, or I may not get the best grade here, or whatever, but that does not make me a failure. To actually differentiate between a failed project and your identity. Our identity is not wrapped up in a project or a grade or anything else. People who move, who fail forward, they actually fail fast in the first instance. What does that mean? Failure is there for us to learn. And the only people who don't fail are people who don't try anything. And I, you know, people who tell me, you know, I, I, I interviewed for two jobs and I got two jobs. I, I have never received any rejections. Well, maybe you haven't tried too hard. And maybe you didn't aim high enough. So, so it's, 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 the, it's the setbacks, it's the failures. And when, when, when we do get those setbacks, we can't dwell on them. That's the point. Failure is a place where you learn, where you dwell for, for, for a time, but then move on. You don't dwell with failure. You learn and you move on. And that's the idea of failing fast and failing forward. And, and people who learn this, are able to bounce back. The people who bounce back are the resilience. They are the people who learn that goodness, things may not go my way the first time or the second time, or if you are Edison and you've done 1,395 experiments that to the layperson don't work, to Edison it simply said, no, now we know 1,395 ways that, that don't work. So now we can focus on the stuff that does. And that's, that's what makes for innovation. That's what makes for, for success. It's the ability to learn how to deal with this. And we are, we are really on a roller coaster ride right now. And, uh, and we are going to have some tough times ahead of us. So it's this ability to be resilient, to bounce back, and to fail forward that I think is absolutely crucial. The other thing I learned was uh, to keep your winning team strong. 
the, uh, this almost sounds intuitive, but let me, let me give you a sense of, of the team. We actually had, um, as I said, seven disabled climbers, and, um, and four of them had to turn back, um, uh, well, three had to turn back at the, at the Barranco wall or just, just below it. But here is Jamie, uh, Jamie uh, McGee, one of our climbers. He is the, the gentleman I was talking about who had a car accident when he was little. He was just absolutely incredible. Jamie had, uh, uh, had, had uh, two, uh, two buddies that, that worked with him, and, um, and he was one of, the, one of the climbers. I'm happy to tell you more about him afterward. This is Jamie's brother, Brian, and, uh, and James, another James, James um, uh, Bridges. Uh, the climbers were chosen with very interesting criteria. Uh, first of all, each climber needed to raise 5,000 pounds to make it on this expedition. So it was a lot of money. Um, secondly, they really needed to have the right attitude to become part of the, part of the team. And here is a team with, with James Bridges and, uh, and Brian, uh, Brian McGee, and those two were an amazing, an amazing team. This team, uh, James Smith and Morgan Roy, they were, they were poster, a poster child of a team. Now, because James was autistic and, uh, and had a lot of special needs. We thought it would make sense to give him two buddies, two, two non-disabled buddies. So he had two buddies. He had Morgan and he had Claire. And it was absolutely fascinating to see Morgan and James had not met until we got to Heathrow Airport and we were ready to take off. And from the minute they met, they bonded. Now, James and Claire, the other buddy, they had known each other for some time. But these two just bonded. And when we put the buddies together, we thought, well, you know, the, the disabled buddies are going to be helped by the non-disabled buddies, and that's how it's going to work. And not realizing, really, the tremendous psychological impact of this. This team, and you will see it in the film, it comes out so beautifully in the film, Morgan is constantly there with James. He's always, Morgan is about six foot three, always watching out for James. James is this little 45 kilo guy. I mean, it was just, and sometimes he'd literally pick him up and, and help him across a, um, a boulder or whatever. It was so, so funny to watch those two. Claire never, never gelled, and, and what was fascinating, we got to the high camp, which was at 4,700 meters, and these two had been inseparable, absolutely inseparable, 4,700 meters. James is, the whole time, he's ready to go, and Morgan at this point is affected by altitude sickness. He is so ill. He cannot move. And so he says to James, James, I can't make it any farther. And James says, OK, but I'm making it to the top. And I just met Morgan the three weeks ago, and we were talking about this. He's an Australian stroppy actor. And he said, oh, shh. 
if he makes it, I can't let him go alone. <laughs> so, so out he scrambles, and he finds the doctors. We had three medical doctors with us, and he finds the doctors, and he says, I have this severe altitude sickness, and, and, and so they pumped him full with paracetamol and, and ibuprofen, and off they went. And, uh, and Morgan said, you know, I would never have made it to the top without James. Because at this point, he was ready to give up. And, and when you have this excruciating headache, you have this altitude sickness, you want to quit. I mean, it just, your head is like this, and you just want to, want to quit. But they went on. And interestingly enough, and they were one of the first team to, to make, make it to the top, Claire, who never gelled, made it to almost stellar points, so almost the top. And during the dark, when we were climbing in the dark, she turned back. And really, I honestly can say the only time I got really angry during this expedition was when we ended up back at the hotel. And Claire came to me and said, you know, I could have made it to the top if I had had as much support as the others. I wanted to rip her head off. And all I could say at that point was, you just needed to ask. We had 180 porters. You just needed to ask. And it was the essence of the point, though, that teams that functioned well made it. Teams, with one exception, and I can explain why, but teams that didn't function well, in our, with our configuration, no Lone Ranger made it to the top. Everybody who made it to the top, and psychologists will have a heyday with this, everybody who made it to the top was in a well-functioning team. And in my case, as you can see, this is my husband and I. We look like Austrian hikers here. It's one of my favorite, favorite photographs. Um, the, we, the two of us, you know, some people say, you know, I don't know why this became fashionable. Should I climb Kilimanjaro for my honeymoon? I don't, quite a few people have asked me that. I don't know what's the fascination. And, and, you know, I don't want to tell anybody what to do for that honeymoon, but I tell you one thing, it was great that we had been married for a long time. <laughs> because we're halfway up the mountain, and, and I don't know what possessed me. I turned to my husband, and I said, you know, because this, you know, he had beard growth now the third or fourth day, I forget now what it was, and, and I said, you know, you're becoming really hard to look at. <laughs> and then, you know, in his quiet way, he just nodded, and, and, and I was just taking a nap, and, and I woke up, and the tent, our tent smelled so nicely. And I'm looking up, and here is my husband with my makeup mirror, and he's shaving. So I could, I could, I could smell the shaving cream. And uh, so for, for, for us, it was an amazing, an amazing experience. And, and I know I wouldn't have made it without my buddies. My husband was glued to me and I to him, and, and we had one, one guide, Ellie, who was particularly with us. And by far the hardest part of the climb was when we left at midnight, we were climbing in the dark for about six hours. 
And I don't know how many of you have climbed in the dark, but when you climb in the dark and you don't see the goal anymore, it's easy to climb when you see where you're going, when you see your, your objective, but when you don't see it, all you can do is really turn inward. You've got to draw on all the energy you have, all the reservoirs you have inside you. And it was at that point that I kept just putting one foot in front of the other, and I was freezing cold. I have never, I, and I've lived in Michigan, I've lived in many cold places in my life, but it seemed like on top of Kilimanjaro, I was freezing cold. And, and our water was frozen, everything was cold. And, um, and I just, because we couldn't even talk at this point, and I just said to Hans, I am freezing cold, and he just, the first time he came alive and he said, you're cold? I said, yes. And he just took a jacket out of his, his backpack that he had carried the whole time. It came down to my knees, but I couldn't care less. I had a warm jacket. This was not a Parisian catwalk. I couldn't really care what I looked like at that point. And so it was really that, that team, team effort. Uh, sorry. Um, so Performance is key. You need to keep your winning team strong. What, what does that mean in business? I don't know how many here are actually running teams and how, or running a company or whatever. For me, the toughest thing is to have to let people go. That is very tough for me. I don't relish that. I don't like it. And, uh, and with, with Kilimanjaro, we had to let people go. We had to send people down. And it was when people who couldn't make it any farther were sent down that it liberated the whole team to keep going up. And that's true in business. People who don't perform, you can't leave them in the chair because it debilitates the whole organization. The key to proper leadership and performance in business is to have the right people in the right chair. And if you don't have the, the right people in the right chair, you've got to make changes. The question is, how do you do it? There is a humane way to do it. You've got to think about the people involved. But you have to do it. And um, the, the, the team that I, profiled, that, I'm pro, that I profiled in the book to illustrate this particular point about keeping your winning team strong um, are Al Gore and David Blood. Um, David Blood uh, is a former Goldman Sachs partner. He set up Generation Asset Management, which is one of the few asset management firms really focused on sustainable investments. And he and El Gore teamed up. Now, what an, what an unlikely combination, you would say. And, you know, here is David Blood and El Gore, and they were actually thinking of calling their firm Blood and Gore. But then they thought that may not be a good idea, and so they called it Generation Asset Management. So in talking to both David, and uh, who has been a wonderful mentor to me, and, and El Gore about this very point, there was consensus that we owe it to the people we lead to make sure that they are incentivized, that the people who are performing are given the, the, the wherewithal to keep performing and outperforming, and those who are not, you have to send back. And that, that, is, that, is, that is tough, but you, that, that needs to be done. 
It is the power of the team, and there is a lot of lip service that is being paid to the team, but this cannot be overestimated. It's teams that accomplish things. And one of the reasons why I'm such a firm proponent in, in diversity is because so much research has been done that shows that the teams that are really creative, that are really successful, are diverse teams. The most innovative teams are not the all-female teams or the all-male teams. They're where you have perfect gender balance. The teams where you get different input are diverse. It's, and, they, and, and when you have good diversity, gender balance, ethnic balance, and so forth, it also takes the ego out of the room which is incredibly important, and we'll come back to that. But the power of the team, I think Margaret Mead put it so well. She said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And I think that's so, that's so true. The I am running out of time, so let me just skip over a couple things here. Um, this is, a key, this is a key point, deal wisely with criticism. I think particularly in this day and age where there is so much, so much social media, and uh, I do talk about this in the book. This is, this is another point um, about always putting the mission before ego. Um, with with the, the death of, of Steve Jobs last week, there has been a lot of discussion about the type of leader he was. And some pe and I, I'm profiling one of the people in my book who actually worked for, for Steve Jobs and worked with Steve Jobs at Next as the chief technical officer. And he will tell you about, about Steve, what a, what a challenging person he was to work for. He was not always a nice guy, but nobody doubted his passion. And nobody doubted that here was somebody who was actually prepared to take his ego out of the way to achieve a mission. And this is so fundamental because what we are seeing with so many leaders, it's nothing but an ego trip. Why do you think these mega mergers were happening with Citibank? Why do you think Royal Bank of Scotland acquired ABN AMRO at a valuation that everybody in the market said is crazy? Why did these things happen? At the end of the day, they were real ego trips for the proponents of these things, for the CEOs of these, of these companies. And I, we see it with business leaders, we see it with political leaders, it, it's, it's everywhere. When the mission is not foremost when what you achieve is not foremost in your mind and you allow your ego to get in the way. The mission, as I said, for us was conquering this beautiful, beautiful mountain. And, um, and uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was just absolute magic. Um, here are a couple, couple beautiful, beautiful shots of Mount Kilimanjaro, a mountain that really has become a symbol for climate change because the glacier on top of Mount Kilimanjaro is melting very, very fast indeed. And, um, and uh, so, uh, but, but if you do want to still stand on top with the snow underneath your feet, this is the time to go. Uh, as I said, we had uh, fabulous porters. We had about 180 porters.
supporters who really helped us achieve our mission. And as part of this, um, when it was the mission before ego, and I touched on it with our guide, Ellie, when we, when we got going, I basically told Ellie, I said, you know, I've tried to do this before, and I didn't succeed. Um, and he looked at me and said, Madam, he called me Madam at that point, he said, Madam, I will do everything in my power to help you succeed. For, for Ellie, that was the mission to help people like me to get to, get to the top. And, uh, and he was willing to do whatever it took to do that. The last lesson I do want to leave you with is this one. This is not intuitive. And, um, and it, is, it is, I believe, a fundamental, fundamental lesson. Because when you get on top of Kilimanjaro, you really feel, most people feel the effects of altitude. Because once you get over 3,000 meters, you start feeling the effects of altitude. And uh, different people react differently. Uh, one of our cameramen just fell asleep, and he was still filming while he was, while he was, was keeling over. <laughs> Another one was vomiting his guts out. Uh, the, uh, uh, different people had different, different uh, symptoms. I had a splitting headache just before we, before we uh, attempted the final summit. And, and then I was fine. Um, the, my closest experience was with my husband, uh, who, is, who is here tonight, and, um, and who is actually a very nice, very polished individual. But once we got on top of uh, Uhuru Peak, uh, he was completely uncoordinated. His limbs wouldn't do what he wanted to do. So he wanted to sit here, but instead he plopped here. Um, and Ellie, our guide, was with us, and, and he, he obviously knew what was going on. He'd flick his finger in front of our faces and say, do you know my name? Do you know my name? He wanted to know that we were still thinking. And, um, and so Hans just looked at him like a surly drunk, and he said, yes, so what? <laughs> and I thought, geez, I don't know this guy anymore. You know, what is, what is happening here? Altitude affected different people in different ways. And I think that's what's happening in real life as well. When we stay too long at the top, it affects our ability to think clearly. And that is true for societies, it's true for corporations, it's true for individuals. If you have a complete, if you've been at the top too long, there's a complete disconnect. I, one of the most striking images of disconnect was when the three automotive companies from Detroit, the, the three CEOs of the automotive companies from Detroit, were going to Washington, D.C. with a begging bowl to ask the taxpayers to bail them out. And guess what? Each one of them separately flew in a private jet. Now, if that's not a disconnect, in December I was in Cairo, and I had been invited to really the creme de la creme of Egyptian society. Everybody who seemed to own anything or was anything seemed to be there. And my hostess incredibly graciously introduced me to a number of people, and so they wanted to know what I was doing. And, and, um, I, and then she mentioned that I was just 
finishing a book, and so they wanted to own leadership, etc. And so a number of people asked me what leadership lessons I was talking about. And so I thought, boy, this is a great place to actually float this one. So I said, well, my last leadership lesson is actually don't stay at the top too long. And at that point, I was getting worried about my safety. <laughs> because a number of people just glared at me and said, you clearly don't know what you're talking about. The top is the only place to be. And I didn't say anything. I was a guest, and I just walked out, and, and my hostess asked what I thought. And I said, you guys are in real trouble. There is such a disconnect between this group and what I'm hearing on the street. You guys are in real trouble. I didn't know at the time that six weeks later the Arab Spring would start, but it was just one of these poignant examples of a complete disconnect. And, uh, and I think this applies to all of us, and it comes back to the point that I made earlier about looking at demographics, looking at trends, because as, as Western society, we have stayed at the top for a long time. The question is, what do we do with that, and how has it affected us? How do we deal with the issues around us? Yes, you can be at the top, but, and there is every reason to do it. The top is exhilarating. There is nothing like being on top of Mount Kilimanjaro and, um, and uh, to be there with people you love and people whose company you enjoy. Let me tell you, the phrase, it's lonely at the top, was not coined by a leader. Leaders take people with them. They don't stand at the top by themselves. And if they get to the top by themselves, it's not long before they topple. So don't stay too long at the top. It is fabulous at the top. We stood there. It, we had perfect visi visibility. We could see the curvature of the earth. We could, the sun was above us, the clouds underneath, uh, below us, and, and the snow beneath our feet. It was magic. And here we were with, with part of the team. And uh, the, the leader who really kept us going during this time, John, who is in the red jacket on the left, um, he was our expedition, the technical expedition leader. He had climbed Kilimanjaro 26 times. Um, and you can see his <coughs> smile from ear to ear. He was in fantastic shape. So it is definitely worth climbing to the top. The view is fantastic. It is definitely rewarding to get there. The question is, what do you do when you get there? How do you behave on the journey? And how many people do you take with you? So with that, I'm going to stop, and I'd be very, very glad to take questions. Thank you so much. That was really very riveting. And the reason I didn't do what I'd undertaken to do, which was to wave to you at 35 minutes, was I looked around and I saw how enthralled the audience was. So I, I hope you'll understand and excuse me for letting you speak a little longer than planned. But we do have time for, I think, a couple of rounds of questions. I propose to take three in each go. Um, 
And I would like to include, um, if I can, at least some one person who's also um, overcome, challenged, enjoyed Kilimanjaro. Um, so let me start here. Uh, if you could just say who you are and then put your question. Please don't make a speech because we don't have so much time. Uh, anybody from here? No? Middle block? Okay, we'll take the two whose hands went up first. And then anybody from Okay, we'll take this. Thanks, Herta. Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned at one point conquering Kilimanjaro, and that just prompted in my mind the question about one's mental attitude towards the challenge and your relationship with it. Is, I mean, conquering is one model. Another one might be seeing it as your ally, or there could be many others. I'm just interested in what you think about that. Hi, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I had a friend who actually went up Kilimanjaro recently and she said the climb up was very motivating but the climb down was incredibly hard. And uh, I just wanted to ask you about your experience on the climb down and anything that, what helped you keep on internalizing the experience? Okay, is there one more? Okay, at the back here. Hi, um, I actually also went up Kilimanjaro in July 2008, so probably around the same time as you did. Um, my question is regarding, again, the mental barrier, because I think when it comes to such tasks, um, your body saying one thing and your mind saying the other, how do you, or how did you in that case, you know, really overcome that? Because that was the hardest part I found about, you know, whether to stop or whether to just really keep pushing. Yes, thank, thank you very much. Great. So the first question about conquering, uh, looking at, at the mountain as something to be to be conquered, uh, it it's it, it sounds like a controversial metaphor metaphor or, or image, and um, I I'm actually much more for, for collaboration. I it just I in the first instance though I looked at at Kilimanjaro as simply a challenge, and it uh, it reminds me of Sir Edmund Hillary when he first attempted to summit Everest and didn't make it. He was shaking his fist at the mountain and said, you know, you're not getting any bigger, but I'm still growing. And I think that's probably, you know, with, with Sir Edmund Hillary, he felt very much that this was a matter of conquest. It was a matter of, of conquering the mountain. And to some extent, in the first instance, I look, look at Kilimanjaro or, or anything as a challenge. And I think in that sense, it's to be conquered, to be overcome. But, uh, but at the same time, uh, if, if you start embracing this and, and, and enjoy the journey, it, uh, for me, it became much more rewarding because it wasn't just something I, I was going to run to the top and feel great that I had conquered, but it was looking around and listening to the birds and, and watching the people around me and, and learning from the people around me and, and enjoying the view. So as, as I looked at this as a journey rather than as a conquest, uh, it became actually much more enjoyable. And I think that does apply to the, how we look at success. If we look at success as a destination, uh, it becomes something that is very stressful because you're charging to get there. Whereas if success is a journey, 
uh, it takes on a different different image. So did that answer your question? Okay. Yes. And then the the point about climbing up uh, was not that difficult, but climbing down. Um, the the first time we climbed uh, we climbed Kilimanjaro, the way down was excruciating for me, and uh, uh, I lost two of my big toenails, and it was just just not pleasant. Um, this time around, the maybe because the the ascent had been so excruciating, and I will take the gentleman's question in the back at the at the same time, because the ascent was so excruciating, coming down was incredibly enjoyable. I felt like I like I was being carried because as you as you run down, you get a lot more oxygen, so so that oxygen just rejuvenates you, and and the key is though to have really good fitting boots. Because if you don't, it's very practical, really, at the end of the day. If, if you have good fitting boots that you don't always hit your toes in a, in a harsh way against, against the, the tip of your boot, it makes, a big, it makes a big difference. And you don't lose your toenails either. But uh, so, so that's, that, that was my, my, those were my two experiences. The, in terms of what keeps you going uh, when, when, you, when you don't want to go, <laughs> we had, and that was John to me, uh, was this amazing, amazing leader because as we, uh, we got to the final ascent, up to that point it was easy come, easy go. You know, you make it at your own pace and whatever. There was nothing forced, nothing military about it. When we got to the final ascent, all of a sudden, John snapped into military precision. And he said, we are meeting here at 11 PM. So you've got a couple hours to sleep. We are meeting here at the tent at 11 PM. We're going to meet. If you are not ready to leave at midnight, um, you're going to be left behind. So we had a rule that basically said everybody needs to be absolutely ready at midnight. We are leaving at 10 past midnight sharp. And if you show up at, at 11 minutes past midnight, you're left behind. And I, I, John was such an amazing leader, so I didn't want to question him in front of the group. And I just pulled him aside and I said, John, what happened to you? You just became a general here. And he said, well, let me tell you. Now it's all about mental ability. It has not a lot to do with how physically fit you are at this point. It's all about your mind. And his experience had taught him that if you don't have the mental wherewithal to show up on time, you're not going to make it. So at that point, it's all about mental, mental ability and the ability to keep moving. And he said, don't worry about people passing you, because we will be passing them. You just keep your pace. You just keep your steady pace and keep going when you don't feel, because you get to the point where it's so painful. And so <laughs> you're nodding. You know what I'm talking about. It's so painful. Your whole body screams that you want to go down. And, but that's when you tell your mind, oh, you've got to keep going. And for me, it became very, very singular at that point, very focused on the, the reservoirs within 
and uh, I'm a person of faith, and so there is this beautiful verse in the book of Isaiah that says, uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up on wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall mount and not faint. And so I kept rehearsing that verse over and over again. I thought, forget the running, I'm not running anywhere. You know, all I need to do is put one foot in front of the other, that's all it takes at this point. And so I looked at different, uh, I, I hummed in my mind, I, I sang in my mind, I really, it was really being very self-contained, but just to, just to keep going. And then having the external stimuli of the extra jacket and the, and the water when I really needed it, um, that's, that's, that's really what kept me going. And last but not least, being in the dark like that for hours was when I couldn't see, I couldn't see the mountain. This, this object was, the difficult for, thing for me was I didn't know how long it would take. And so I kept asking John and I kept asking Ellie how much longer, how much longer, and nobody would tell me. And finally Ellie came bouncing and he said, you know, you're doing so well, he said, you're doing great, we're going to be on time. The time meaning by sunrise we're going up to be on Stella Point. And, and, and I'm German by background, so when somebody says time, you know I relate to that. And, and so all of a sudden it was like, oops, I can, I can make it. So it was really an internal and the external stimuli just, just at, the, at the right time. Very good. Thank you. I see um, two hands, one at the back there, one at the back here. And if I don't see another one hand, I was going to ask a question myself, but we'll take those three. Hi, um, I climbed Kilimanjaro last Christmas when I was actually 16, in memory of my uncle who passed away from cancer. And um, I was wondering, you said basically it's important to always take someone with you to the top, but my brother was literally vomiting out his guts like you said someone else was, and my father completed it at 19, so they turned back, but I was so destined to kind of continue on metaphorically for my uncle taking him to the top with me, but I did it by myself, so I was wondering if this still defines you as a leader, kind of. <laughs> uh, at the back here. I just wanted to ask how much time it took you to climb and how much time it took to come down. Oh, <laughs> and the lady here in green. I'll come to you in the next round. Hello there. Um, my name is Helen Cleary. I was just um, wondering how you made that initial selection. I know you said that it, they needed to fundraise and their attitude, uh, but you was also saying about letting people go. So given how many people I imagine applied, how did you actually do that and how did you let those go that, that didn't make it? The, the question here in the back, first of all, congratulations. I think that is an amazing, an amazing achievement. And one of our climbers, whom I couldn't feature here, our youngest climber in the team um, uh, from Saudi Arabia, he, uh, he is a Paralympic athlete. He was climbing with, uh, he has cerebral palsy. He was climbing with his sports teacher. And he wanted to do it for his father, who had just died 40 days prior to the, to the expedition. And uh, so his whole orientation was to do it for, for his father, to do it for his family. So I think the, 
the fact that you have the compassion to do something for somebody else and to do it in honor of somebody else um, is, is absolutely fantastic, and I applaud you for that. I think uh, the, you're, we need leaders who have their head and their heart in the right places, and, uh, and I just encourage you to keep going because I think you will be a very formidable leader in, in, your, in your own right. Um, the, the time it took us to, to climb. Um, the, it's one of those things, you know, it takes you forever to get up and then, uh, and then very fast to come down. We left uh, the Machame, which I, I, for, I forgot to mention, uh, we actually had, because, because we took the Machame route, the, it, it takes longer than the, than the Coca-Cola route, and, um, and, uh, but we, the, the, the average success rate for the Machame route is about 35 and we had close to 60% success rate. So it was a very, very, statistically speaking, a very successful climb, never mind the impact that it had on all of us. But because of the route, it took us, we left on Monday afternoon from the Machame Gate. We stood on top of Kilimanjaro on Sunday morning, um, and we were back at the Machame Gate on Sunday noon. So it took us six days to get up and, uh, and one day to get down. But that one day, that doesn't tell the whole story because that, uh, you know, you start climbing at midnight. Uh, in our case, it was Friday, Friday midnight. We started climbing. So we, we ascended, we came down, we rested for a couple hours, and then we kept going down. And uh, because we just, just the way the logistics work, so on that one day, most of us were on our feet for 18, 19 hours. So it, <laughs> it was a very, very long day, um, but the, the, the descent is quick. Um, and, and in terms of the team selection, the, this was a tough one because initially we thought we, we will do a nationwide, we, we cast the net very widely, and then we recognized, as I was talking to people, they said, well, this is so exciting, this hasn't been done before, blah, blah, blah. And so we, we recognized we would not have the resources if we had opened it up to, to, uh, to, to analyze the applicants. So we decided that we would limit in the first instance the applicants to, non -disa to, to disabled climbers in the vicinity of, of where the charity is, where Enam is. And we were actually inundated with, with applications. Then we had a very long selection. So we started with the disabled climbers, and we had the, the criteria for, for the climbers. And then we had a long selection weekend uh, in the first instance. We put these, these teams through all sorts of battery tests, and, and uh, they, you know, we, we wanted to see how they operate as teams. We had them blindfolded. We, had, we did all sorts of exercises with them. We had military personnel with us to, to take them through, through these exercises. And so we got a good feel for, for so we had a good short list. And that's how we ended up with a short list of the disabled climbers. Then we added the Saudi climber a bit later, um, and uh, and uh, that was the selection for for the for the team in the first instance. And then we added the non-disabled climbers as as appropriate. Uh, so that was that was how we we selected. And then there was a lot of preparation from that point on 
both physical and mental. And I will never forget one of, because we couldn't really train for altitude with this team. And, and once we had people on top of, uh, in, you know, a few months before, before Kilimanjaro, we had an expedition where we took everybody up Mount Snowden. And I will never forget this group. They were so excited and they said, we will make it on top of Kilimanjaro because we just climbed Snowden. And, and I didn't have the heart to tell them, well, Kilimanjaro is five times as tall as Snowden. But, but there was this sense of achievement and that bonding. So that's how we did it. Should we take one more moment? Sure. Leave your time for sure. Okay, there's a gentleman here. Well, you attempted it at age 40. Uh, you made it at 50. Do you have any further plans for the next decade. <laughs> I did it last year by the way and I was 70. So. Oh, congratulations. Okay. Anybody else? Lady here. Thank you so much for your inspiring talk. talk. My question is with regards to the leadership lessons you've shared with us today. One of the lessons was that we should not, or a leader should not stay at the top, at the top too long. How does one know when too long is too long? Excellent question. Uh, the gentleman here in white. I think it's white. Hi. Do you see a big difference between leading volunteers and leading a corporation in the sense of the, you know, the volunteers really want to achieve it, whereas in a corporate environment, you will meet people that just want to be there because they are there without any sense of goal or purpose. Um, some comments on that. Fantastic question. Can I cheat and add mine? Yes. Because this will be the last round. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask, because you've taken on such a difficult challenge with people who are not used to being out, some of them even outside their houses, is there anything you can share with us about what their stories after the climb? Yes. Yes. Um, Next, next challenge. Um, I don't think I'll climb Kilimanjaro for my 60th or 70th birthday because uh, this, uh, this expedition was just such a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, we, we produced a, a, an award-winning film. We, it, it, it was just there were so many things that came together. So that, it, that was just a wonderful experience. But do I have other Kilimanjaros? Do I have other challenges? You bet. And uh, they, are, they are clear, they are, they are there, so, um, uh, you know, abs absolutely, absolutely. And I feel right now I'm very much living out of my comfort zone in, in, every, in every respect. So, so yes, yes, indeed, and I congratulate you for doing it for your 70th birthday. How, how fantastic, indeed. Um, the question about staying at the top too long, when do you know that too long is, is, is too long? Um, I asked um, Mohamed Mansour that question. Uh, minister Mansour was the former transport minister for Egypt. Uh, he left the Mubarak government, and, um, and we were talking about this very, very question. In his case, he stepped down because he was blamed in a very unfair way for a railroad accident where a number of civilians were killed. It was simply a situation where a cow got in front of a train and, and people were killed as, as a result, but the Minister for Transport was blamed for it. And, um, and he comes from a leading family in Egypt and 
the toll that that criticism took on his family was unbelievable. And when his, when his son came to him with tears in his eyes and the son said, Daddy, how can they blame you? You did not drive that locomotive. You did not drive that train. How can they blame you? I can't take this. Um, he started to say, okay, maybe, I have to, may, maybe it's time to step down. I think also one symptom of staying at the top too long is if you can't handle criticism anymore, People who are at the top too long tend to surround themselves with yes people. And they lose their sense of accountability. And I was talking to President Kama, Ian Kama, about this from Botswana. And he was very, very strong on this point. He said, you know, I surround myself with people whom I have given permission to hold me accountable. I want them to say to me, hey, you're acting like one of those jerks. And if, if, if you don't allow people to hold you accountable, if you can't deal with criticism, if you just want yes people around you, you've stayed at the top too long. And, and I think when you become insensitive to the people in the valley, you've stayed at the top too long. So it's really a question that I think each person individually needs to ask because it's not just for people at the top of corporations. This applies across the board, and, uh, and so I think it's something that we each need to ask ourselves. Um, the, the question about leading, leading volunteers, uh, actually I, it's a, such a good question because I think leading volunteers is the most leadership intensive exercise under the sun. Uh, because in business, you have a carrot, you can pay people, exactly. you can pay them bonuses, exactly. you can incentivize them and so forth. You also have a pretty good stick, which is, you know, I'll fire you job. if you don't yes. perform, right? <laughs> so so in, in business, in, you, you, have, you have some pretty, pretty good carrots, pretty good sticks. When you're leading volunteers, and I think this is, this is really important for if you, when you're hiring people, if you're looking for leaders, and you want to test them, ask them what they are doing in their volunteer capacity. Because the people who can lead volunteers can lead anything pretty much. Because when you're leading volunteers, you don't have that carrot and you don't have the stick. So you're really appealing to their intrinsic values. You, you, you appeal to, to them to, to achieve something that's bigger than they are um, themselves. So it's a, it takes a different type, of, different type of leadership. You may end up with very motivated people who certainly may want to be there. Uh, so that is, that is a nice thing. But you have to continue to challenge that motivation and channel it effectively uh, to, to get to the top. Um, and then last but not least, uh, uh, your question about the story of the climbers. Um, it's absolutely fascinating what, how it has impacted the climbers. It, this is such a heartwarming story because, you know, this was done, yes, you know, for a disability charity. And the first thing when some of the climbers were picked up from Heathrow Airport, um, they, they were driven to um, one of these convenience stores. And out of habit, the van stopped in a disabled parking lot. And one of the spots for disabled for, for disabled cars, and the the Kilimanjaro team got out of the out of the van and said, "My goodness, don't stop in the don't park in the disabled bay. We just climb Kilimanjaro. We don't need the disabled bay. <laughs> we don't need the 
the Saudi climate was fascinating because, he, as I said, he was the youngest climber. And in Saudi Arabia, if you are disabled, you're in the back door. You know, it, you're shunted into the back room. And this friend of mine who kind of put disability on the map in Saudi Arabia had fielded this team. And, uh, and so she actually, she had organized, uh, this was in January after the climb, she had organized a disability conference in Jeddah with health ministers from all the people in the region. Uh, the ministers were there. The, it was a high-level conference. And she actually asked this climber, Ahmed, to talk about Kilimanjaro. Now, this guy had never stood in front of an audience. And he gets up. He's tall. He's young. He's lanky. And he stands up there, and he says, I climbed Kilimanjaro. And for the first time in my life, I felt like a human being. And then he said something completely politically incorrect, but I guess he didn't care. He said, the foreigners gave me a voice. <laughs> so to him, we were the foreigners who gave him a voice. And then last but not least, one of the non-disabled climbers who who couldn't make it to the top. She had not trained enough. She had not prepared enough. She cried like a baby when she needed to go down. She said, if I had just trained more, if I had just lost more weight, I could have done it. So nine months later, she went back, and she made it to the top. Lovely. Uh, I'm going to stop because I want to leave her a little time to um to sign and talk to those outside who wish to. But uh, thank you very much. I think I, I speak for the, the others in the room too, having watched their reaction and their faces as you spoke to them tonight. I think it's been an excellent presentation. And, and, and she's really, Hurt has really brought to life, uh, in a very vivid way, I think, what your book covers. And it does include a lot more of those stories that Hurt talked about very briefly from you know, Al Gore and Ian Khama and Patricia Scotland and so on. So. Um, those of you who are interested in getting the book, it's outside, and perhaps we can just say a good, good night and a thank you again to you for coming. Today.